Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with new guidelines from the Pentagon to deal with political extremism within the ranks following the disturbing number of current and former military members who took part in the January 6th insurrection. Joining us is Rachel Van Landingham, a retired lieutenant colonel, a professor of law at Southwestern Law School, and former judge advocate in the United States Air Force. During her military career, she served as a senior legal advisor on the international law of armed conflict, military prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, appellate defense attorney, and nuclear security inspector stationed in the United States, South Korea, and Italy with deployments to the Middle East. We will discuss the recent op-ed in the Washington Post, Opinion, Three Retired Generals, the Military Must Prepare for a 2024 Insurrection, by Paul D. Eaton, a retired U.S. Army Major General and Senior Advisor to Vote Vets, Antonio M. Taguba, a retired Army Major General with 34 years of active service duty, and Stephen M. Anderson, a retired Brigadier General who served in the United States Army for 31 years. They raise concerns about the defiance of the head of the Oklahoma National Guard, who is refusing to mandate COVID vaccinations against Pentagon policy, and we will assess whether the politicization of vaccines could inspire other politically motivated governors from states like Florida to follow suit. We'll also look into the numerous incidents during Trump's presidency when retired General John Kelly stopped Trump from ordering the Marines to shoot Mexicans crossing the border, and when General Milley intervened to ensure that a mentally unstable Donald Trump did not order a nuclear strike, which, in spite of what seems like a good idea at the time, Milley's actions were a violation of civilian control of the military and a dangerous precedent, no matter how noble and necessary the intentions. Then, as the investigations into the acts of a Banana Republic petty dictator who happened to be President of the United States and the treasonous actions of his blindly loyal lieutenants serving in the United States Congress continue to get closer to outlining a coup attempt that almost succeeded, and the New York Attorney General moves closer to indicting Trump and his companies, while the Manhattan DA's probe into Trump's taxes, etc., is proceeding, we will assess the possibility of a career criminal and con man who has been one step ahead of the sheriff all his working life might soon be fitted out for an orange jumpsuit. Joining us is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020 and we will discuss his latest article at The Guardian, Republicans are plotting to destroy democracy from within. He argues that what we are now witnessing is a plot to destroy American democracy from within, since its organizers have infiltrated the highest echelons of state and federal government and have instigated and are condoning acts of violence against our elected officials. And although this might sound far-fetched, the threat is real as the seditious group leading us into a one-party American fascist state is none other than the Republican Party now controlled by Donald Trump, and its target is the 2024 presidential election. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, So Background Briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org, or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Rachel Van Landingham, who is a retired 
Lieutenant Colonel and a Professor of Law at Southwestern Law School and a former Judge Advocate in the United States Air Force. During her military career, she served as a Senior Legal Advisor on the International Law of Armed Conflict, Military Prosecutor, Criminal Defense Attorney, Appellate Defense Attorney, and Nuclear Surety Inspector, stationed in the United States, South Korea, and Italy with deployments to the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Colonel Rachel Van Landingham. Thank you so much for having me, and please refer to me as Professor. That's that's who pays my bills and my primary focus today. Okay. All right, Professor. So, obviously, the op-ed that uh, appeared recently in the Washington Post from the three general officers has had an impact, and I take it that the Pentagon for some time obviously has been working on new rules, I guess, for how to deal with political extremism within the ranks. But let's start with the letter. How did the letter strike you from the three generals, warning that we could have a not just another insurrection like we had in January the 6th, but a much more dangerous one, in which not only would the military be divided, but there would be amongst the insurgents, members of the military as well. Well, I think it was a necessary, you know, clarion call. It was a warning order that, hey, look, this stuff isn't just conjecture or um, uh, nut job conspiracy, uh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. Um, There's real tangible, factual evidence that the military, which is a reflection of society, can... um, our society is greatly divided, that our military could be greatly divided. And that that poses a, a, a very disturbing, a clear danger to to a, you know, the, the peaceful transition of power. And I think they rightly pointed to the, the disproportionately high percentage of individuals who participated in the insurrection a year ago, almost a year ago, uh, the disproportionately high percentage of folks that were veterans, as well as a few active duty members. And that that is linked to the increasing number of individuals uh, with military backgrounds that have been charged in the um, in extremist uh, related crimes across the United States. Right. So there's been a 350 percent increase in extremist related crimes committed by veterans in the past decade. So you link those two facts together, the, the, the disproportionately high percentage of, of former military, including a couple of active duty military in the 6th January insurrection, coupled with the, 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 the huge increase in number of folks that have left the military and have, have uh, participated in actual extremist related criminal, you know, violent crimes across America. This kind of op-ed needed to be written. Um, and it's really, I think, the audience's the Department of Defense to say <laughs> we like to think the best of our service members and the vast majority of our service members are serving with honesty and integrity and courage, but they are being exploited. They are they are the target for misinformation campaigns. So I'll, I'll wrap it up right there for, for the introduction. But I think this was a necessary and, and courageous move by these three retired senior military leaders. And how do you think, though, I mean, the fact that there have been a number of general officers who have supported President Trump. Some, uh, I think, lower down in the ranks have, have actually been involved, you know, more actively involved in in the insurgency. But by and large, those that did show up within the insurgents on January the 6th were, I think, more down in the enlisted ranks. And it does seem that for the longest time, we've relied on senior military officers to intervene with some sanity because we've had a reckless ignorant and ill-informed and dangerous president who, you know, starting with the first chief of staff, uh, the Marine General, General Kelly, one of the first things he had to deal with with former President Trump was Trump wanted to have the Marines on the border shoot Mexicans crossing the, the southern border. And President Trump at the time was told that you simply can't do that. And this is not what... Uh, the Marines were trained for. So that's an example of the fact that for some time now we've had senior military officials in the Pentagon and in the White House uh, who have been incredibly important in restraining an ill-qualified president. So it's a little ironic, isn't it, that we're talking about this situation now? 
Well, I think those two things are linked, Ian, and I think it's incredibly disturbing um, that folks think it's it's a good thing, a normally good, normatively good thing that we have the military act as some kind of praetorian guard and actually have to restrain the act the sitting president. That to me is incredibly scary, and that should get Congress involved. I don't want the military being the one making the decision. That's it. It, uh, it undermines the entire concept of civilian control of the military, and goes back directly to our founding fathers' understandable strong fear of a standing army, um, and that they would be turning over in their graves if they could see the standing, the enormous standing army we've had since since the end of World War II. Um, and the, the huge role that it plays in, in our political, democratic, constitutional schema today. I think that's I, I, I'm glad. OK, I'm, I'm glad on one hand that that we've had sane and reasonable military senior leaders um, acting to uh, to tampen, uh, to tamp down the 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 what I would say extremist and unconstitutional impulses of a president, but that, but I don't like it. And I think that is spells doom for our, for our democratic experiment. If we think it's, if we want to rely on the military as being the same person in the room, um, because we're supposed to have civilians as the same people, same people in the room, but civilian control of the military is more than just the president as the commander in chief and his secretary, his or her secretary of defense. Um, it's also Congress. And that's who really needs to get involved here, um, because I'll, I'll point out, Ian, because you brought up the examples of uh, some broad examples of military, senior military members um, restraining President Trump's impulses, for example, to do things like I don't think you mentioned this, but this one's related to bring um, active duty tr uh, military members active duty and get them involved domestically in domestic law enforcement, and domestic affairs, for example, um, the, the protests across the country following the, the murder of George Floyd in summer of 2020, President Trump wanted and ordered, you know, basically the 82nd Airborne, 82nd members from the 82nd Airborne to be deployed outside of Washington, D.C. And as we see from reporting now and, and, and since that that senior military leaders did deploy them, but then uh, but cautioned strongly against their use and then brought them back. Um, and there is something called the Insurrection Act that limits the president's ability to do that. But it's it's vague. There's so much discretion vested in the actual president um, to be able to do those things. But you have those those what seemingly normatively good decisions by senior military leaders to try to tampen down or to avert a constitutional crisis or avert the inappropriate use of military of the military within with in, in domestic spheres. But you also see we saw General Milley the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary Esper, of course, in that infamous uh, photo op in Lafayette Square in which General Milley allowed himself, right, and he apologized for and he recognized his error, and I give him great credit for that, um, for the military to be manipulated and used by President Trump, um, which the military has been used and manipulated by President Trump. But I want to bring in an example that's not not so flattering to those senior military leaders, and we're still getting out the information about what exactly happened and more information is coming out as the as the um, as the the congressional investigation into the six January events play out. But it seems that, and this was mentioned in the general retired general's op-ed, the acting defense secretary, because of course we had the previous secretary, Secretary Esper, was unceremoniously um, fired by President Trump because he wasn't doing exactly what President Trump wanted, um, and that's President Trump's you know, that's his, his choice. But he installed another lackey. Uh, Secretary Miller, but Secretary Miller testified that he deliberately withheld military protection of the Capitol. And it seems like General Milley was extremely concerned that if he did have military members, and these are National Guard, and remember the National Guard does have a domestic law enforcement role underneath their their governors. But because the, there is no governor of the, of the District of Columbia, again, another reason why the District of Columbia absolutely should be a state, and it's blame on Congress for for not acting there, but because they're in this anomalous situation of not having a governor, the, the D.C. National Guard does fall under the auspices of, of the Department of Defense up to the president. But it seems like General Milley was seriously concerned that if he had troops there, even though they were National Guard's um, men, men and women who are trained for civil unrest and, and statutory allowed to engage in domestic law enforcement, that they would be um, misused then by the president. So it seems like he was actually afraid that if he put the troops there that were needed, the president would repurpose them potentially for 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 unconstitutional, nefarious purposes of of um, of blocking, of obstructing and uh, obstructing the certification of the election. 
Um, that to me is really concerning because if the president ordered them to have 10,000 troops there and they are just saying no, they being General Milley at this senior ranking, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that's insubordination, right? Do we want to trust an unelected four-star general as reasonable and sane as General Milley seems to be versus our elected commander in chief? I mean, this is truly the constitutional crisis. The military should not be in this position in the first place. Um, and I think that's the underlying message of this of this op-ed is that Congress must get with the Department of Defense, mandate the Department of Defense. They need, and, and they mentioned training, training and education. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, um, it comes down to the American people and the, elect the, the, the process of who they're going to elect. Because if it plays out like it sounds, it was play, sounds like it was playing out, and I'm not sure we'll ever have enough facts to be able to confirm to, you know, definitely not beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But if General Milley acting in concert with Secretary, with Secretary of Defense disobeyed an order by President Trump to have National Guardsmen at the Capitol, that's, that's pure insubordination. And that's, that's a direct subversion of, of, of the civilian control of the military. And to me, that's incredibly dangerous um, to, because they feared the actual commander in chief. There are processes and procedures in place if the commander in chief is is under the Constitution and, and their, its amendments, if a commander in chief is mentally unwell or unable to, to fulfill their duties. So, you know, it is, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's interesting, right? Because I do think we have to be cognizant of the fact that, oh, okay, the military wouldn't allow itself to be used like this. Well, the military shouldn't be the one making the decision on how it's going to be used, right? Um, because if it's making the decision today how it's going to be used, then it can be making the decision tomorrow on how it's going to be used. And maybe we're not going to like the, its next decision. So I think we need to be incredibly careful about strengthening the democratic norms, constitutional norms of civilian control of the military. And that means Congress um, absolutely being more involved. Um, but I agree with the, with the op-ed's call as well for, for training within the ranks. Because he said, oh, there, there was primarily lower ranking folks. It's not just primarily lower ranking because the... It, the power of social media, Ian, as you know, is immense. I mean, it cannot be underestimated. And individuals serving in the military today are targets for misinformation, just like, you know, average citizens are, but I think even more so targets for misinformation and exploitation by various groups, plus by, to be honest, by political parties as well. Um, the, the, the military is being used more and more as a political football um, shamelessly so under under the Trump administration. Uh, and that's, I mean, we saw Trump flags, Make American Great flags being flown from you know, special operations um, Humvees down in, down in, was it North Carolina um, during part some of the campaign. So you have to have military commanders that are cracking down on that. And that's where, if you want to switch, that's where the, the new guide, Department of Defense guidance on extremism really comes into play. And it, but it's whether or not it's actually going to be enforced and implemented and, and that's where I, I and, and implemented fairly and, I, and and I'm I have some doubts on that and again I'm speaking with Rachel Van Landingham who's a retired lieutenant colonel and professor of law at Southwestern Law School and a former judge advocate in the United States Air Force during her military career she served as a senior legal advisor on the international law of armed conflict military prosecutor criminal defense attorney appellate defense attorney and nuclear security inspector stationed in the United States South Korea and Italy with deployments to the Middle East. Well, let's talk about that. But obviously, General Milley's intervention warning, or at least preparing for the possibility that Donald Trump could order a nuclear strike. A lot of, there's been a lot of controversy over that. And a lot of us are breathing a sigh of relief that there was an adult in the room. But obviously, but Ian, is this an adult, adult we can trust? I mean, there, there are allegations that the, the, the military lied in a report um, that the army lied and General Milley could have stopped, prevented some of this. For example, I mean, you had the head of the National Guard, the head of the National D.C. National Guard at the time of January 6th, as well as his staff, so staff judge advocate and 06 uh, colonel, who both said that there were, that the timeline that, that the army released and the military released regarding 6th January had a flat out false, was flat out false that there was that was not just wrong and inaccurate that there, there were falsehoods in it so i have to admit i'm not i'm not so trusting of our of our chairman and, and, and of our senior military uh, because of because of 
you have a two-star general and his colonel who were there at the time coming out and saying that what the military is releasing is not true. Well, it was released under General Milley, right? So I I just want to caution, put out some cynicism there too. Well, I agree that that's uh, the dilemma. In fact, a group of 700 scientists, engineers, 21 Nobel laureates uh, have written a letter to President Trump about the forthcoming uh, nuclear posture review to deal with the question of a reckless and unstable president ordering a nuclear strike and to make that impossible. It'll put impediments in into the fact that, that the president has this sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. So that's, uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the new nuclear posture review, but just to touch on what we're talking about in terms of the insurrection on January the 6th and what happened at the Pentagon, as you say, we still don't know. We don't know the role of General Flynn, the brother of Trump's first national security advisor, who's now a major QAnon advocate. But we do know... But his active duty brother, of course, we can't... I mean, the sins of his brother shouldn't be carried no, over to not. his active duty brother, who seems to have, by all accounts, acted with integrity um, and, and honesty um, through, throughout all this. So I don't want to tar the brother with anything that 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 Mike Flynn has done or said, right? No, I wasn't going to suggest that, but we do know that Cash Patel, who was uh, Devin Nunez's protege, who was put into the Pentagon at a high level along with Esrico yes. and Watnick, I think fairly likely played a role there, and that's why Cash Patel has been subpoenaed by the House Select Committee yes. investigating yes. the six. But we do know that the head of the Oklahoma National Guard did, in fact, disobey the president. Is that, that's pretty alarming, is it not? Yes, and but at least the, the Oklahoma and a, and a few other states are following due process, following the law and the fact that they're taking legal routes to actually sue, um, sue, uh, the, sue the president regarding and to the administration regarding the order to 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 vaccinate. Um, but it, that's incredibly disturbing. So what happened with Oklahoma, just for the listeners, is that the Oklahoma governor and he the Oklahoma governor is the commander of the Oklahoma National Guard when they're not federalized. And so the Oklahoma National Guard takes their orders from their governor. That's true in every state um, except for the weird non-state of the District of Columbia. And but the Department of but there's a there's a complex web of of regulations, a regulatory schema that governs basically the fitness of the National Guard. And under the Constitution, Congress has the authority to ensure that the, the, the National Guard is is fit and ready to fight for the U.S. government to become federalized. And so the military, so the Department of Defense does have legal authority um, to set the standards for what National Guard's men and women have to meet. Um, and so the so the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Austin, ordered that all National Guards men and women meet the same requirements as those in active duty regarding coronavirus vaccination. And there were numerous states that just did not like that. But Oklahoma took it a step further instead of um, so the Oklahoma governor fired his adjutant general, which is the top ranked general within a state's National Guard organization and installed a lackey who basically, who then said, okay, I'm not going to order this. This is optional for my military members. And, and technically he is that, that adjutant general does when they're not federalized, they, it's not, they don't have a legal requirement to follow the order of the secretary of defense. What the secretary of defense can do is um, remove their federal recognition, which means they could never be called up on federal orders again. They're never going to be, never going to be deployed. Um, but are you going to keep doing that as, you know, how many of those, how many adjutant generals are you going to run through to do that? So I have not seen any, any indication that's what the Department of Defense is doing. Um, I, but it, it's a worrying signal of, of, a, of a type of mutiny, to be honest. The mutiny is, you know, collective action to, to, um, for, to either um, use violence or to, uh, against orders or to subvert, uh, to prevent um, to military command um, from being carried out. And so, you see a type of a type of mutiny there, but it's complicated because of the structure of our of our total force. But the bottom line, Ian, yes, it's very worrisome that you have you have a, a governor working in concert with their their adjutant general to not follow the fitness requirements, the standards for fitness and readiness of their own national guard members, which means those national guard members are not going to be 
considered, they're not going to meet the same fitness standards as active duty, which means if we were in a major conflict, they are not ready to fight because they pose a threat to those on active duty because they're on vaccinated status. But what, what is the level, right? I mean, how worried should we be? That in and of itself is very worrisome. Um, but if you look at the percentage of individuals within the Oklahoma National Guard who, who aren't vaccinated yet, is that a big enough number to actually be worried? I do, even though I think, obviously, uh, it's a fact that the coronavirus and vaccination responses and, and mask mandates, et cetera, have been greatly politicized. I do want to kind of take that that aside um, because it does seem to have its own own complicating factors to it. I'm not sure that indicates that we're going to have, you know, any type of any type of coup. Um, but it does show it shows a, an erosion of democracy democratic norms. It shows an erosion of, of the, of just the standard, what was, what's often called lex non scripta in the law, which is just in the customs, um, customs and past practices that are considered, almost considered part of locks, at least in military law. And that is that if the secretary of defense sets a fitness standard for, for active duty and national guard, then the governors will, will ensure that their national guard members are meet that standard because they're dual headed. Those national guards, men and women, can and will be called up and are absolutely crucial for our national security. And the governor is saying, no, I'm not going to meet this standard. But what gives me hope, Ian, is the fact that at least they're pursuing the legal route as well. Perhaps, right, perhaps when they lose in court, which I, I'm, I'm very confident they will, then the governor will say, okay, we lost in court. We're just doing this while we're waiting on the legality of this, of this vaccination order, um, which of course is going to be, is going to be upheld. What, what, what I would be much more worried if when the litigation wins its way and, and to its its final point and Oklahoma is told, no, this this order by the secretary of defense is legal. Then if the Oklahoma governor and their adjutant general still refuse, then we're at a at a crisis point because then the Department of Defense is going to have to say, OK, we're going to we can we can we're going to remove federal recognition of the Oklahoma National Guard. Right. That means or at least could they could do it because the top general is saying, I'm going to refuse to do this. How can we trust that top general then to follow orders when they are federalized? You can't. He needs to be have his recognition taken away. And there's a board procedure for doing that. And then then who's going to be in charge of the Oklahoma National Guard? You're going to have to unrecognize is, is the, the legal term of art. The entire Oklahoma National Guard in order to send a message to states that you can't just do this. Right. They're going to have to send a very strong message. But I, but how many states are going to. And that's going to be telling. Is Florida going to fall? Is going to follow suit? Florida is huge and has a has a huge a huge national guard. You can't de-recognize, unrecognize more than one or two states, or else there's going to be a huge hole in our national security. And I think our enemies would take advantage of that. So that's going to be a real draw. And I'm hoping it never gets to that point. Well, indeed, and you do have some very political governors vying for the presidency and. It's never been controversial in the in the ranks of the military to be vaccinated. They, oh, it you, has been anthrax, absolutely. I was, I was about a, to say. <laughs> I, I was about to say that, but they were marshals. forced to do anthrax vaccinations. Yes. Then there may well have been some legitimate reasons to object to that because the efficacy of those vaccinations has never been proven. Well, there was a period of time there was there was a there was an experimental approval by the FDA. And once that experimental approval was gone, then the courts said, okay, no, this is fine. And then the military started courts marshalling folks and the problem, the problem went away. But coronavirus, as I've written about publicly, is is different, which is why I advocated for one standard approach to all active duty members who refuse to be vaccinated. They don't need to be court martialed. Um, They just need to be administratively separated and sent on their way. I mean, they're they're their consequences, they no longer get the honor of being able to wear the United States uniform. And that's their and that's their choice. But coronavirus vaccination has been too caught up in political, sure. you know, invective and political and misinformation. And I, I don't think it's worthy of it's not worthy of a federal prosecution and the stigma of a, of a federal conviction, which is what a court martial is. That's not fair. A civilian wouldn't undertake that or wouldn't right. have that kind of consequence. And therefore, a military member shouldn't either. But they should have to recoup repay, for example, if they just went through three years of, of schooling on being paid for by the military, they should pay that back, right? Because that's not fair. That is their choice. They are choosing not to get the vaccination, then they should ha- they should face those consequences, but not criminal consequences. 
Well, we've run out of time, Rachel Van Landingham, but I thank you so much for joining us here today, and I hope you enjoy the holidays. Oh, Ian, you're always lovely to discuss these issues with. Thank you for bringing attention to these vital national security areas, and have a lovely holiday season. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Van Landingham, who's a retired lieutenant colonel and a professor of law at Southwestern Law School and a former judge advocate in the United States Air Force. And during her military career, she served as a senior legal advisor on the international law of armed conflict, military prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, appellate defense attorney, and nuclear security inspector stationed in the United States, South Korea, and Italy with deployments to the Middle East. We're going to take a B-Station break. We're back looking into the acts of a Manana Republic petty dictator who happened to be President of the United States and the treasonous actions of his blindly loyal lieutenant serving in the U.S. Congress as the investigation into them continues to get closer to outlining a coup attempt that almost succeeded. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, who's the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at MS College, and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are plotting to destroy democracy from within. Welcome to Background Briefing. Lawrence Douglas. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining. And and as we approach Christmas, uh, Lawrence, it seems that our politics are increasingly poisonous, increasingly dangerous, that even though ostensibly we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas, I think the prophet of peace, uh, the prince of peace, is not necessarily on people's minds. uh, But is it possible that the consciousness of the American people can be raised since we've not only do we get sort of propagandized by religion and sometimes lose sight of its real purpose, but we also get propagandized about politics and lose sight of its real purpose, particularly when we keep talking and telling ourselves that we're the world's greatest democracy? Well, we're the world's greatest democracy that within three or four years could end. The Soviet Union almost disappeared overnight. The same could happen to the United States. Well, it certainly is the case that I, I think our our country is facing as grave a threat to democracy as we've seen, at least since, let, let's say, the, the Civil War. And obviously, I wasn't really around back then. None of us were to really kind of assess, to compare the threat that we're facing right now to the mortal threat to the country that uh, was confronted back then. But, you know, I, I think some of us might have hoped or millions might have hoped that after the January 6th insurrection, there might have been some kind of snapback, that that might have been some kind of reality check, that we really saw just what an incredible threat uh, Trumpism represented to the country. And that might have even um, motivated Republicans to distance themselves from that kind of threat to democracy. And yet what we've really seen over the last 10 months is um, a a pretty abject failure on the part of the country to respond and a really disturbing willingness for the uh, Republicans to not just kind of to look past the insurrection, but to operationalize the lies that it was based on for the purposes of simply raising the stakes in in their war against democracy. Well, in 2016, Trump had it covered in the sense, well, actually, I, I, I think I should correct that by saying Putin had it covered. Remember, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, said that Vladimir Putin is Donald Trump's case officer. And there is a lot of truth to that. And unfortunately, it's been somewhat muddied by the inability of the Mueller report to really nail Trump. 
and also how it was mischaracterized by Barr. And the truth about Russia's influence over Trump is still bottled up in counterintelligence files and in Trump's scorched earth tactics of preventing any revelations about his taxes, although they're slowly moving in that direction. And eventually we might find out how Russian oligarchs on the instructions of Putin guaranteed these loans through Deutsche Bank that kept Trump going after his multiple bankruptcies. But the point is that Putin had it covered. Trump, if he'd lost, which everybody thought he would lose to Hillary Clinton, including Putin, uh, that he'd be running around the country for the four years of her first term, leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up, and stop the steal, stop the steal. He's going to do that no matter what in 2024. And he's doing it now in 2020, after, the 20, after his 2020 loss. He's come up with the stop the steal. And we already have 78% of Republicans not believing that Biden is a legitimate president. So he's already crippling and dividing us, which is exactly what Putin's agenda is. So even if he doesn't run in 2024, one way or the other, he'll run on stop the steal with his surrogate, whether it's the uh, governor of Florida or, or somebody else. The permanent dismantling and destruction of American democracy by this one man is breathtaking, and it continues, and he controls the Republican Party. How did it happen? Well, again, it is it is breathtaking. I agree with you entirely. Um, I think uh, one of the things that we really need to pay attention to is the way in which uh, Republicans, again, out of um, out of actually true belief, uh, sheer opportunism, or just cowardice, um, have kind of uh, supported his effort to basically erode all confidence in the legitimacy of a presidential election. And I think that is the thing that, that we really need to focus on. And, uh, you know, the insurrection was a very, uh, you know, that was a, a clear example of lawlessness. What's happening right now that people, I think, just simply are not paying sufficient attention to is the way these various uh, Republican legislators in numerous states are using the law itself as a tool to basically prepare for the um, uh, basically destruction of democracy through eroding uh, confidence in uh, an electoral outcome. You know, we see all these various states uh, um, engaging in acts such as turning the counting of votes over to partisans, away from people who are either nonpartisan or even Republicans who have demonstrated a willingness to uh, kind of faithfully execute their job and really to kind of turn it over to partisans and loyalists who are willing to muddy the waters um, should any election seem to go against uh, Republicans. And again, it's using these legal means to kind of dismantle democracy from within. And that is just something that people need to pay attention to because it's not gonna be an insurrection next time. It's going to be, by the time the electoral count, uh, the electoral votes are counted, in uh, Congress on January 6, 2025, uh, the damage could have already been done on the state level. So in other words, the insurrection on January the 6th was a rehearsal. They came close, but they failed. Ever since then, Trump and the Republicans have been laying down the groundwork and creating the architecture for a successful coup next time. Whichever way the vote goes, it doesn't matter. They're gonna win. They'd rather cheat than compete. They've got it covered. I think that's exactly right. And I think even as you pointed out, it doesn't even matter if it's Trump who's who's running. It doesn't have to be Trump. It could be Josh Hawley. It could be Rick DeSantis. But I think what they've already done is they have basically exactly as you know we both just said, that they've created the architecture on the state level for the purposes of making sure that um, the count is not controlled by nonpartisans or neutrals to make sure that loyalists and partisans control the count. And uh, the, the great playwright Tom Stoppard once said, democracy isn't the voting, it's the counting. 
and uh, and that really is underscored when we see the efforts on all these state um, Republicans for the purposes of trying to gain control over who's going to be counting the uh, ballots. Well, it was Stalin who said it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the vote. And again, I'm speaking with Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are plotting to destroy democracy from within. So let's talk then, Lawrence, about what can be done you know, even if the voting rights bills pass and that they're in doubt, along with, of course, the Build Back Better bill, which the mansion torpedoed. So even if the voting rights bills passed, my understanding is it would take so long to implement them and there'd be so many lawsuits and challenges that it's not likely that they would be even implemented before the 2022 elections and not even 2024, perhaps. So those are the realities. What can be done? Do you think that these inquiries into Trump, particularly the one being conducted by the Select House Select Committee looking into January the 6th and the New York Attorney Generals and the New York uh, District Attorney, these other inquiries which Trump is fighting tooth and nail and trying to run out the clock, as he's always done, it looks as if they're sort of closing in on him a little. I'm not sure the extent to which he's going to end up soon in an orange jumpsuit. But is that the only chance that the Democrats have to level the playing field, is to basically demythologize the Fuhrer, the dear Fuhrer, that I mean the most embarrassing things, and there's going to be more details coming out from the House Select Committee, but this character, this sort of junkyard dog, Jim Jordan, congressman, who yaps and screams in, in his phonetic pro-Trump way. He, he, this, his emails to Meadows indicate his culpability in trying to organize and help with the coup. But he also, in the course of it, as, it, as they failed, as the coup failed, he then apologizes to Trump. You know, we really tried our best, dear Fuhrer, but we didn't quite make it. But I guess the appendix to that was we'll, we'll make it next time. So this is what's happening now. We're starting to learn more. Is this going to make the difference? Is this going to change the narrative so that Trump world finally gets a wake-up call about who their hero is? He was, he was never about America first. It was always about Trump first and still is. And they're just a bunch of suckers. And are they going to learn at all or are they going to learn the hard way? And will they, once they find out who this guy really is, will it change the dynamics? I don't have a tremendous amount of confidence that people will uh, suddenly have the scales fall from their eyes. I mean, you, you can have, you know, starting, startling uh, revelations come from this uh, House Select Committee. And yet I honestly don't think it's going to move anybody. And again, one of the things that I find most shocking is the way in which you have people like this, uh, you know, this representative uh, Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, uh, who also was one of the people who, like Jim Jordan, was backing up Trump. Uh, you know, he was asked to testify and he, you know, sends out a tweet just ignoring it, saying, um, you know, he comment he condemns the committee as illegitimate, as not duly constituted. Um, it's just it's just incredible. So I don't think there's going to be any kind of I don't think any revelations, no matter how shocking, no matter how horrifying, no matter how detailed and nuanced that come from that committee really will do anything to move people's perception of Trump. Now, obviously, if he's actually, you know, indicted and tried and convicted, let's say, in, in New York, uh, that would certainly make it much more difficult for him to run in 2024. But, you know, as I think we both said, it's not so much that the, the, the danger that Trump would win in 2024. It's that the Republicans have already just created an architecture that anyone who uh, runs in 2024, it could be Trump, it could be the person who picks up his mantle, a Josh Hawley type, uh, that they would be the beneficiary of this uh, architecture that's been put in place to control the counting of, of votes. And I think that that's the real danger. 
And we're continuing the conversation with Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are plotting to destroy democracy from within. And we're talking about the threats to democracy itself from the Republican Party. It's sort of no accident that Tucker Carlson went over to broadcast his Fox News program from Hungary and celebrated the autocrat Orban there. So it's sort of pretty shameless that the within the ranks of the Republican Party that they're perfectly happy to create a one-party state here in the United States and and hold on to power and perpetuate minority rule. And you can make the case that a secession that failed during the Civil War is in the process of succeeding as red states secede from the Union. They don't want to live with the rest of us. They don't want to live in a multicultural America. And you're seeing this happening in the state of Texas already. They're building a tyranny of the minority there and also in Florida. So if this is in our future, what does it tell us about us as a society? Because, you know, Biden won by 7 million votes in spite of Trump's disastrous record. So a lot of Americans still huge. I think it was 74 million, wasn't it, that voted for Trump? So there are a lot of people out there that support him. And the idea that through cheating that they could bring him back or bring his clone back still doesn't address why it is that the American people could be so deluded by this obvious fraud and con man. Remember, when he started to run, it was Mitt Romney who made that really powerful and prescient an incredibly accurate speech saying, don't vote for this guy. He's a complete con man. He's a total fraud. You know, you'll end up with a diploma from Trump University. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, it's not as if there aren't, you know, obviously there continue to be Republicans who vehemently oppose him. I mean, you have uh, this organization that the former New Jersey uh, governor, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, created, basically urging Republicans to vote for Democrats. Uh, basically because she believes that the Republican Party has become so radicalized in recent years that they're no longer a, um, you know, they're no longer dedicated to the project of our democracy. Unfortunately, a lot of this also has to, you know, is is exacerbated, if if not directly caused, by just structural problems in our country. You know, if we didn't have this really dysfunctional and dangerous electoral college to worry about, uh, we wouldn't really necessarily be worrying about 2024. Exactly as you pointed out, you know, Biden won by 7 million votes in this presidential election. 7 million, that's a substantial number. It's really hard to create a uh, election architecture to make 7 million votes uh, disappear. Um, it's not that hard to muddy the waters if all you're trying to do is make 44,000 votes disappear, which we should recall was the... Um, that was the combined margin of difference between uh, Biden and uh, Trump in Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. 44,000 votes combined. If uh, Trump had gotten 44,000 more votes or 45,000 more votes in those three states combined, uh, you would have had an electoral college tie. So it's much easier to muddy the waters in the way that the Republicans right now are plotting, given the really dysfunctional way we have of going about uh, electing a president. So getting rid of the Electoral College would certainly be one way to help safeguard our democracy, but it's, you know, it's very difficult to do given the fact that it's anchored in our constitution. You know, there are other smaller things um, in that we can think about trying to do. There's this uh, incredibly uh, opaque and poorly written Electoral Count Act of 1887 and this is the thing that you know people like Hawley and Cruz relied on uh, this past January um, 6th for the purposes of trying to challenge electoral certificates that had been submitted to Congress. Uh, it would be nice to change that so that you need a majority of people in both houses uh, to raise objections for the purposes of challenging these certificates. Right now, it's basically all you need is one person from the House and one person from the Senate to raise an objection. And uh, then suddenly 
you can kind of gum up the works, at least for a certain period of time. So, you know, there are these small changes, but I think the larger issue we're talking about is um, it's, it's very hard to, to kind of, again, get our democracy to snap back, given the way in which uh, people are being, you know, fed lies, not simply by the likes of a, a, a Donald Trump, but the way in which uh, it's, it's reinforced and amplified by the likes of a, a Tucker Carlson and this kind of this, this media environment that we occupy. Right. Well, then, you know, that suggests that Rupert Murdoch is as much of a danger as Trump. I think that's exactly right. I think that is exactly right. And, um, you know, we have this, um, obviously, we want to protect free speech. We have a, a very robust uh, free speech tradition in this country, but it does raise this question as to what is the what is the constitutional merit of absolute false statements that simply contribute to a toxic political atmosphere. I mean, I think we could say that the First Amendment was never designed to deal with a media environment in which um, simple uh, toxic falsehoods are articulated, amplified, and circulated. Well, this is the, a global problem. I mean, Biden had his summit for democracy recently at the White House. It was a virtual summit, but the issues there are what faces the globe as well as the United States. It's hard to believe that, that we have that same problem of the encroachment of kleptocracy and autocracy on democracy and how frail democracies are being undermined and taken over and then how, you, how despots have used voting as a mean to legitimize themselves and used, you know, the power of the internet to maintain even greater control. Zuckerberg and company, I mean, have been a huge boon to these dictators, particularly, for example, the, the dictator in uh, the Philippines. He's, been, he's weaponized through Facebook attacks on his opponents and those who are trying to stand up for the rule of law and for democracy. So this is a global problem. But it's just extraordinary to think that here in the United States, we are heading towards what Putin has already created in Russia, where you have elections, but they're meaningless. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly right. And, um, you know, I think the one thing we should also focus on is um, uh, the fact that it's really the presidential election, I think, that we need to be more concerned about than uh, you know, some of these midterm elections. But this business about minority rule that you're talking about, it's, you know, one of the things we've also seen is an unwillingness of the Supreme Court to intervene for the purposes of trying to, you know, rectify some of the things that contribute to this toxic environment. Another thing, obviously, that uh, contributes to minority rule and also contributed to the radicalization of the Republican Party is gerrymandering. Um, basically, when you no longer have competitive electoral districts, you no longer need uh, candidates uh, to reach out to the other side so they can appeal exclusively to the base. That contributes to the radicalization. And, you know, you have this uh, Supreme Court decision from a couple of years ago of Rucho v. Common Cause in which the Supreme Court, with Justice Roberts writing uh, the majority opinion, uh, recognizing that uh, gerrymandering is a poison to American democracy, and yet saying, um, we, the court, it's not our responsibility to shape some kind of remedy to that problem. It's up to the uh, elected officials to, to rectify that problem. And on, on some level, it, it would be nice if they could, but they're the ones who are creating the problem in the first place. And so again, that, that structural problem simply just contributes to the mess that we find ourselves in. So in the last uh, couple of minutes here, not to, you know, people are getting ready for Christmas and right. uh, out buying presents and trying to make the best of things with this new wave of in the COVID pandemic, getting people terrified and you know being afraid of being in groups and people being urged, in fact, not to to get into crowds and have smaller Christmas gatherings. Where there's a lot on people's minds but how do you think you can penetrate all of that with this with this appeal to stand up for american democracy i, I mean i i'm waiting for biden or somebody to make this the central issue that 
we can't call ourselves a democracy when we're allowing it to literally be stolen before our eyes. And we've seen what happens when, the, when autocrats take over democracies. It's not that hard. It happens all the time. It's not out of the question it could happen here. It seems to me that this is the, the biggest issue facing us, but I'm just wondering how you penetrate all of the other concerns and, and the daily sort of grind of the news cycle and cable news is endless chattering to focus on this as the main issue and somehow turn things around so that we have majority rule. That was always the intention of a democracy and certainly was the intention of the founding fathers. Obviously, you want to protect the rights of the minority, but the majority should rule. Well, I think one thing is that people should be listening to Ian Masters and not listening to Tucker Carlson. I mean, people really, I mean, they need to take responsibility for their own political future. And that means uh, being uh, in, informed and being alert to what's happening. I mean, people really need to have their eyes open. And the other thing they need to do is, you know, I, I really do think that uh, it's an unfortunate thing to say that uh, Democrats need to win big in order to win at all. But I do think if they can win big, and I'm not confident that they can, but if they can win big, then it is much harder for the uh, Republicans to use all their various strategies for the purposes of mudding the waters and basically kind of uh, stealing uh, a victory out of an election that they've really lost. Um, and so I think it would be really incumbent on people to you know, work as concertedly as possible to frustrate the efforts. Part of it means not um, not letting the Republicans succeed in the various efforts to um, make voting harder. And we've seen state after state, you know, 19 different states um, pass laws that try to limit the use of mail-in ballots, limit the use of drop-off um, boxes. And, uh, and, you know, if people let them succeed, then in a sense they are um, complicit in the destruction of their own democracy. So, you know, people need to be vigilant and they need to do whatever they can on the smallest level uh, to resist what the Republicans are trying to do. Well, I thank you for joining us, Lawrence, and I hope that you do have a Merry Christmas or Happy New Year and enjoy the holidays, and I hope our listeners also do. <laughs> it's not completely... I mean, we're not here to paralyze and depress and reinforce despair. We're trying to figure out ways to bring us back to the light as opposed to succumb to the darkness. Absolutely. And there really is no reason to feel, you know, paralyzed by what's happening. What people really should feel is they should feel aggravated and mobilized to try to really fight for their democracy. And if they do so, uh, they'll, I, I believe people, you know, stand a very good uh, chance of succeeding. So I do all, I wish all your listeners and to you also a happy and healthy holiday. Well, thank you again. And I've been speaking with Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are plotting to destroy democracy from within. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know?
amor la cosa. Ah. 